0: Welcome to episode 135 with my guest, Christina Jazberg. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual shame to compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. It's also the Twitter name you can follow me at. And uh, please go check out the website. Join the forum. Read some blogs by me, blogs by uh, other people. You can support the show by going there. Um, but uh, especially the forum. Oh, and take some surveys. There's about a dozen different surveys that you can take, and you can also see how other people responded to those surveys. And those of you familiar with the show know that those are a big part of me getting to know you and you getting to know each other. So, um Those of you that have done it, um, really, really appreciate it. I want to give a final plug to uh, L.A. Podfest, which is happening this weekend, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, October 4th through 6th. And I will be appearing on uh, live taping of uh, Mark Maron's WTF Friday night at 7 o'clock. And and I'm doing a live taping of this podcast on Sunday, October 6th at noon. And my guest is uh, Aisha Tyler. Really looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, that episode will uh, air at uh, at some point, unless it's a total train wreck. But I can't imagine that it, uh, it would. For more information, go to lapodfest dot uh, and it's taking place in Santa Monica. Um, what did I want? To... Oh, I have to share this with you guys. I was playing you. As those of you that are regular listeners know that uh, the litmus test for where I'm at emotionally and spiritually in my life is usually revealed when I'm playing sports. Um, and, um, I play and, uh, I play hockey a couple of nights a week. And, uh, lately I've been really good with losing graciously. Uh, the two teams I'm playing on are struggling. Uh, I'm gonna even go further and say we suck. Um, and I've actually had some games where we've gotten, uh, beaten badly and i've been able to shake the hand of the other team afterwards and and congratulate them and really mean it and that's such it's such a, new, a brave new feeling um because i'm learning not to take it personally and but i have moments where it's it's hard and there's this team that we play that i don't i don't know if it's because they have a guy who is in the stands, and literally nobody is in the stands except this one guy for the other team, and he comes and he cheers him on, and hes he seems a little off. I don't know how to, de- to describe it, but hes he sings, he's like a one-man organ, like singing the songs that you would hear an organist play at an event, and he cheers, and it's, It's just bizarre, and it gets on my nerves, especially when they score a goal. So maybe that was kind of at work um, when we're playing this team, but uh, we were getting killed by them, and uh, and I start micromanaging, you know, telling people, you you know, you do this, do that, and we're out on the ice, and I played defense, and one of the forwards wasn't rushing towards the guy on their team that had the puck, what we call forechecking, and uh, I kept saying, go to him, go to him, go to him. Um, you know, to try to force the guy to either pass or turn the puck over. And and this guy on my team wasn't doing it. And I could just feel the rage bubbling up in me. And um, there was a pause in the game. The ref blew the whistle. And I skidded up to him. I said, you got to go to that guy. You know, you got to forecheck him. And he said, he just looked me right right in the eyes and he said, I love you. <laughs> And it was so awesome, and I and I immediately laughed, and I you know, and I gave him a little pat on the on the I don't know if it was on his butt or his back, but I just said that is the most awesome thing I've ever heard. It just completely, um, just sent me the message that you know he could have said fuck you, but he and I said to him that is the nicest fuck you I've ever I've ever had, and I've been laughing about that for the last two weeks just made me, the other two things that made me laugh happen today. I was at my favorite coffee place and six cops are surrounding a guy who's handcuffed. And I'm walking past and I hear one of the cops say to the handcuffed guy, "So have you recorded a CD yet?" <laughs> no idea what the story is on that, but uh uh made me laugh. And then 5 minutes later some lady with two lattes in her hands walks to the glass door Apparently, isn't paying attention, walked straight into the glass door. She was okay, but spilled a latte. The foam from the latte flew up onto her face and formed a perfect walrus walrus mustache. And I probably shouldn't have rushed up and said, oh, my God, that is the greatest mustache I've ever seen. I probably should have waited about a minute to say that, but... um, she didn't seem to find it as funny as I did, so I helped her clean up, and then she was able to laugh, but oh my God, what a what a beautiful day. I think I, think I can tell sometimes when I'm in a good place, when I'm able to see just the beauty of that slot machine that the universe is, and uh, it, I don't know. Anyway, I want to read an email that I got from um, a listener who had filled out a survey that I read a couple of... Um, episodes back and the gist of her survey was that she is filled with a lot of self-hatred self-harms um, beat herself on the back to the point of like almost being bloody because she had kissed a boy and cuddled with him um, or a guy I mean she's uh, she's an adult and um, so she wrote me a letter uh, thanking me for uh, reading her survey and uh, I thought her letter was really kind of beautiful and Um, So I wanted to read it. Uh, She writes, and she calls herself Ang Marie, A-N-G Marie. Uh, Your nonjudgmental attitude has helped me realize I am not dirty or terrible for for whatever feelings I have, and that I can cut myself some slack. I'm still not quite there, but I'm working on being more open with myself. Your encouragement to be honest with the therapist also helped me talk to her about my self-injury, which is a ridiculously difficult topic for me to broach. Now here comes the hard part. It is rather strange that things worked out the way they did, but I was listening to your podcast on Thursday, the day after I attempted suicide. I didn't call it suicide at first. All I wanted to do was sleep, or that was what I told myself. It took three days in the hospital before I realized that when you take pills like that, you don't want to sleep, you want to die. That realization sucked, and I'm still dealing with the fallout. I'm still surprised that I didn't die. I just slept for 20 hours. Guess I got my wish in a strange roundabout way. Uh, by the way, um, it's always okay to email me after stuff like that happens, but please don't put the burden on me by saying you're considering it. That is beyond. And I know I said this last week, but that is beyond the scope of my abilities and my emotional um, makeup. Um, so please call a, a suicide hotline if uh, if you're if you're considering that. Um, Continuing, Uh, it took five days in the hospital, but I now realize that I've been in denial about how terrible I felt and needing help and just the general state of disarray in my life. Um, I realize I have a support system around me that is more than willing to help, but I so desperately didn't want to be a burden that I forced them from my life and lied through my teeth every time they asked me how I was doing. I've decided to be honest with them. And when they ask how I am, I say terrible or not bad or whatever I'm feeling. Being honest, take some of the pressure off uh, having to appear perfect. One of the things I found in the hospital is that I have a really hard time asking for my needs or even acknowledging that I have needs. I try so hard to be perfect, to not be a bother, to be the quote golden child. That has become my identity. I mean, when I was in the psych ward, I waited two days to ask for chapstick,
1: two days,
0: all because they were busy or I didn't want to bother them or I can go without. I realized how uncomfortable I am with asking for anything and accepting help in any form. I feel this massive massive amount of guilt about it. But my brother said something that helped. He said, how can you have a relationship if one person doesn't have needs or wants? Would you wanna be in a relationship where your partner never asked for anything? Wouldn't that make you feel useless or like you weren't really wanted? Fulfilling someone's needs is what makes relationships worthwhile. A relationship is give and take. Who wants to be in a relationship where there isn't that balance? Big hug to your brother. Uh, Anyway, uh, I'm doing my best to express what I need. Little things right now, like a hug or someone to talk to. Getting out of the hospital was a great and difficult exercise in need expression because I couldn't drive for a few days and had to ask for rides. I'm still not comfortable with doing it, but I figure practice makes perfect. And I keep in mind that when when I was in the hospital, my brother said, I want to help you. Let me do it. Having someone help you out of love instead of obligation, which is the only reason I thought people would help me, changes things. I just wanted to say thank you. Please keep doing what you're doing. Mental illness can be terribly lonely and a taboo subject. Having someone talk about it with such openness and compassion makes it more bearable and it makes me hate myself less for experiencing it because I realize other people have too, even if very few are talking about it. And uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to read that letter, uh, other than I love seeing people um, turn a corner or feel the return of hope, is this episode uh, I'm about to play is like a love letter to your email, Ang Marie. And um, I hope you enjoy it as much as I do.
1: Every human being has weird
0: thoughts going through their head. and she is a friend did I pronounce it correctly?
1: yeah, okay. you did
0: great Christina was uh, recommended to me by uh, my good friend Janet Varney, who was my first ever guest uh on the on the podcast actually recorded right at the the same table I'm sitting at right now we're at uh, we're at Janet's place and we were talking before we started recording um Christina is a childhood friend of Janet's and um we we were just talking about what to cover because christine is also going to be a guest on janet's podcast and we didn't really want to cover all of the same territory so um since janet's podcast focuses mostly on uh, the adolescence of people 's stories uh Christine is going to kind of save that part of her story for janet 's uh podcast um you 're going to give me the bro- kind of the broad strokes any any big seminal yeah. stuff but we 're going to focus mostly on your struggle with your mental illness and mm-hmm. your um trips in and out of uh psychiatric yeah, hospitals it
1: started after
0: also known as the sexy shit.
1: Oh, sexy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so where where would be a good place to and and Janet is free to chime in at any point because she knows uh Christina very well and I and I said to Janet, you know, if if it feels like we're skipping over something that you think the listener would want to know, um Please feel free to uh, to chime in, and for those of you that haven't listened to uh, Janet's podcast, it's called the JV Club, and it's a it's a great podcast. She um, her guests are all female, and it kind of focuses in on their uh, adolescence uh, years, but uh, it goes beyond that as well. But uh, if you love uh, humor and vulnerability and honesty, uh, check it out. All right, back to Christina. So. Where where would be a good place to, to start with your story? Are you from Arizona?
1: Yeah, um, basically I've lived there most of my life, um, thirty years, and I'm from LA to start out with. But we moved um when I was seven years old to Tucson and um things started out fine, you know. Um, but when I was in grade school my dad became very sick with um a mental illness, schizoaffective disorder. Um, which is like schizophrenia um, With He had mostly the depressive, Depression part um, It can be with like bipolar disorder How,
0: um, how is a schizoaffective Different than uh, straight up Schizophrenia
1: There's Schizophrenia I think has less Emotion involved um, There's less love Of the emotional Where schizoaffective has the depression Element or has the bipolar Element to I it see. So he had double whammy.
0: <laughs> and schizoaffective has uh, some psychotic components to it. Mm-hmm. So where where they yeah. kind of hallucinate and
1: mm-hmm. He paranoid. definitely had paranoia, um, delusions and hallucinations. And it was really, you know, it was my norm. So I didn't really know anything. I knew stuff was different. But at the same time, I was so young that that's kind of what my household was and it wasn't all the time he got on medication he would get better for a while and the medications back then had really bad side effects and um you know so as i could definitely tell when he was he was off um
0: uh and and was your mom in the picture
1: yeah my mom and dad have been married for over 40 years um i'm very happy to say that because they've Stuck with each other through some very hard times and uh, I have a brother and a sister. Um, I'm the middle and uh, Yeah, so even through my dad's illness even through mine my mom has been a rock and and my dad too, you know
0: Um, Give me just some highlights kind of seminal moments uh, in your battle with your with with your mental illness um, Growing up and then we'll get to the part where you started okay just seeking treatment and going into hospitals
1: um happened really fast i kind of was took the role of um you know the perfect child that's kind of the role i thought was best for me um and it was sort of a survival type thing where my sister and brother rebelled a lot so i got great grades and you know did all the things you're supposed to do um and then at age 17, I started um, with bulimia and anorexia um, while I was still in high school the last year. And then um, after that, I went to the U of A. Um, follow- and, had you, and
0: had you been treated
1: for anything uh, up
0: to this point? Had you seen a therapist or a no. psychiatrist? Well,
1: yeah, for the eating disorder when my mom found out. But prior to that, no. Like, even with my dad's illness, we... Never went to family therapy or anything that I remember. Um, but
0: was it th- talked about?
1: No. See, that's the thing. Did you
0: know he was sick?
1: I, that I knew he was sick. Um, that's the word my mom used. Dad's sick again, and I didn't really know what sick meant. I mean, really, no. That and I don't know if my mom. I mean, back then it wasn't talked about at all. So it was sort of a family secret. You did know? you
0: did you think that your dad was experiencing reality or did you think your, your dad is broken from reality? I mean, we're
1: He was definitely broken from and reality. And you
0: even as a kid you recognized, okay, he, there he's something's yeah, off. Yeah,
1: because um he would think we were his students and things, you know, he was a teacher and and he would he would be off where I knew inside of me that something was not right about what he was saying, you know. And it was really scary it was some of the worst it's <laughs> the worst times. I can't imagine yeah I can't imagine um, but you know I dealt with it how I could and uh, it kind of bit me I think back um, the perfectionism definitely um, with the eating disorder and um, then after you know I started to say I when I started college I only made it three months in, and then I was just so depressed I couldn't get out of bed. You know, um, For three days, I remember, it was three days and three nights. Couldn't get out of bed. Then I was just off the wall, couldn't sleep for three days. And then I um, took a razor and cut myself for the first time, and um, that was the first of many.
0: Um, to get the rush of self-cutting or to try to kill
1: yourself? At that that first time was to stop everything, and so it was more of a suicidal gesture, I would say um I did write out a note saying that I loved everybody um although I didn't picture myself dead or anything like that i it was more on that tone than what later it turned into um, later, but at that point um I did um, take myself to my therapist's office, who I was seeing for my eating disorder. And he told me I needed to go into the hospital because I had cut my arm. And that was my first of over 80 hospitalizations of my life. Wow. Psychiatric hospitalizations.
0: What does it feel like the first time you're admitted, not by your own choice, to a psychiatric hospital?
1: It was always my choice. I was never petitioned except... One time I petitioned myself, which sounds outrageous, but I'll, t- I'll get into that a little okay. bit later on. But, um, yeah, I, I always went willingly. Um, there was always part of me that wanted to help myself um, no matter how I resisted. There was that resistance inside Um so, the first time that I went in, I said, okay, I'll go in, you know.
0: So, you didn't you didn't fight that therapist when they said, we need to no, check you in? You were I like, said,
1: oh. you know, and maybe it's because I was used to seeing my dad go.
0: How many times did you see him get checked in?
1: I have no idea. Um,
0: Dozen? Twenty?
1: Maybe, like, six. Okay. <laughs> I just okay. pulled that out. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah, so...
0: So that your 1st what was your first hospital visit like, and were you diagnosed with anything?
1: Yeah, they diagnosed me really fast. Um, they have to, I guess. When you go into a psychiatric unit, for insurance reasons, they have to give you a diagnosis within a certain amount of time. And they diagnosed me with schizoaffective disorder because they asked me. This is my take on it. They asked me, do I have mental illness in my family, and I said yes, and I told them what my father had. And it was just like, "Boom, that was what I had, and
0: were you hallucinating
1: though? no, but i don't know i I don't remember hallucinating yeah. and i I have no recollection of that um they also diagnosed me with borderline personality disorder um because of the cutting um,
0: did that I, did that turn out to be true?
1: I think I had borderline um traits, but you know I really I don't define myself by any diagnosis. I mean, people will ask me. I mean, for the show purposes, yes, I will. Um, But, you know, it's changed so many times. I can't even tell you. I mean, if you can imagine 80-plus hospitalizations. I I can't imagine. And then having a different doctor diagnose you every single time you go in.
0: Do you at least get frequent flyer miles?
1: Well, I should. (laughs) I should be going around the world with those (laughs) (laughs) 80-plus visits, yeah. So... Actually, I was what they call a frequent flyer. Really? <laughs> yeah, because I was in so much, they knew who I was. It was embarrassing, really, for me. I would like hide my face when I would go in, you know, because I'd be tearful and stuff, and I just wouldn't want to even show them I was there again.
0: You felt like you had failed some somehow, or
1: oh yeah, like definitely.
0: you're like you were you were just genetically flawed, or uh, I mean, what what was the was it the feeling that I'm just born uh, a mess, it's something that's beyond my control, or I am weak, and if I were only trying harder, I wouldn't be showing up here? Where 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 was the shame kind of pointed Definitely
1: the second, the I'm weak, um, I messed up, it's all in my control, and I messed up.
0: And if I had done it perfectly, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be here. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense that that perfectionism.
1: Yes. Thing would, <laughs>
0: would, I mean, that is if you're a perfectionist, that voice is the loudest. Yeah. And it just constantly wants you to feel that you are less than that, mm-hmm. that the perfect solution exists. But because you're so weak and stupid, you either didn't do it, or you couldn't see it to do it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and you can see how the eating disorder would fall into the place of perfectionism. And even the cutting, um, because it was like the cutting evolved. Let me kind of go back a little bit from that first hospitalization. Um, the cutting got worse and worse over time. And I did start having symptoms of... Um, affective disorder I guess I don't know if it was the meds I was on or what but I which
0: was, was the cutting um the first time was a suicide attempt that was the first time yeah. you took a razor to your mm-hmm. to your arm but then afterwards it became a, a pain release where you would
1: yeah I met some girls in the hospital that first time who were you know who actively cut and harm themselves and it gave me an idea that's what it felt like I was like I have an idea of what I can do now, and it was like matter of fact, you know, kind of like my eating disorder. It felt like a decision in a way, but then it takes over you, and it's not a decision anymore.
0: That's what they they say about addictions: is uh, it's like dancing with an eight hundred pound gorilla. Yeah, you don't decide when the dance is over.
1: (laughs) No, (laughs) it's so true. And I look at you know the cutting and the eating disorder definitely as addictions for me um,
0: describe the the what you would get out of the um, controlling your eating or cutting or both
1: well, probably in, about in your fe- to, in your feelings yeah. and your
0: thoughts and like um, you know describe if you would a situation you would be in and what would make you want to then cut if you can think of any specific instances or general
1: yeah like I would Get a bad grade on a paper. And I would, the anxiety would build up and the stress would build up. And I would feel like it would be punishing to me if I cut myself. Like, I deserve this. And then, Everything would just build and build and build, and that cut.
0: And would you would you feel it in your body or just your mind or both? What did it feel like? The actual
1: physical cut?
0: No, the bu- the building up. When oh, you describe it, building.
1: Yeah, I would feel it physically and mentally. Um, Can you just des- describe? Just an overwhelming wave of, and 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 like what You know how like water will fill up a tub. Mm-hmm. And it almost was just like I was filling up with this overwhelming sensation that something needed to happen with that sensation. It was going to be – it was encapsulated in my body.
0: Would you feel like a change in your heartbeat in your breathing? Would you Would you feel something in your chest? Or would your face get flush? I mean – No. Um,
1: I think it was just – a feeling that I had known for a long time but just intensified like a thousand times. I've always been a really anxious person. Um, but times that, you know, by itself a few hundred times, you know. And uh that was me at those moments. And
0: would it would it be fair to say, and I've heard people describe this the mental illnesses as be, before, especially people who've made suicide attempts, that it's like the reason they attempt suicide is not because, oh, suicide sounds like a great idea. It's like they're fleeing from a burning building where the feeling that that, that they have in their body or their mind is so overwhelming and intensely negative that it's it's like they're escaping from something. Yeah. There's an immediacy to it.
1: And that's what I kind of meant by the 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 tub <laughs> kind of thing is that it felt like I was drowning, like it would fill up and up higher up my body to where I couldn't breathe. And, you know, releasing something needed to—release needed to happen in some way. Some people do it differently, of course, than cutting. But to me, I was hurting so bad on the inside, and I had no words to describe it. And for me, cutting was a way to describe it to myself. um, I did it on my arms, um, so I'm not sure— now, when I look back on it, was that to show it to other people because it's so prevalent um, and you know it was a sign of i'm hurting mm-hmm. to me, and that's what I've gone over and over in therapy um trying to figure out what it all meant
0: uh, uh, Christina just showed me the scars on her uh, on her arms uh, what do you What do you think and feel when you look at the scars on your arms
1: um you know the the strong part of me feels like oh they're they're battle wounds and you know that's more of the optimistic part of me and I do feel a sense of sadness. I hurt a lot, you know, emotionally, um, and those days were not good days of my life.
0: When I look at your arms. They look like battle scars to me because I, I know what it's like to live with mental illness, and it's a battle. It's a raging battle. Um, but it's the if you've never lived with mental illness or with some with the particular mental illness that somebody is struggling with, um, you can't really understand what it what it is that they're going yeah. through or where where they've been but I mean my god 80 hospital yeah visits
1: and one to the state hospital which I was there for three months that's the one I put myself into um, because I was in and out for cutting mostly I was in and out of the hospital so much every month about um I was back in again for about four days then they release you you're on new meds, you're trying to get used to those new meds, you think you can do it, you get out there. The world was just too much for me. it too stimulating, too evil. Um, it felt like it was out to get me
0: can you can you be more specific? Were there certain things that were especially triggering uh, to you?
1: Yeah, people um, loud noises, um, surprise, like I always feared getting kidnapped. Um, I actually believed and kind of still do to this day that I was kidnapped when I was little. And even though we have no proof, I have this memory that plays in my head that I was kidnapped when I was little. So through my adult years, I had really bad memories of that. And, you know, my mom says no, but it's just it's just a fear maybe, you know, that turned into visions inside my head but it was real and i remember walking to school to college and looking behind me um thinking who's gonna nab me and what am i gonna do and after a while i I highly
0: recommend you never do a conga line
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) i'll keep that in mind that's a good point Uh, <laughs>
0: well, you're you're starting to say in in school.
1: Yeah, in school um you know cars would drive by and if there were like especially men um I would be very leery and I didn't want to be surprised about anything. I wanted to know what was going to happen. And you know, you can link that back to my dad's illness. Um it was often like a very negative surprise when he would get sick. Maybe surprise isn't the right word, but jolt to my system.
0: Yeah, I mean, my God, when I when I imagine what it would be like, you know, just an average parent who is emotionally volatile, but living in reality can be terrifying to a kid. Mm-hmm. But to, to then have a, a a parent who has broken from reality, so there's nothing that yeah. is off the table. Anything is possible. Any terror or horror or that that has to be
1: It was confusing because with his medication he was so he was he's the sweetest man and without it he was someone i didn't know
0: why would he stop taking it like everybody else does because they think they're better
1: no back then the side effects were really bad um it was medications like thorazine howdol um and he would get back um cramps in his muscles um tardive dyskinesia which i don't know if you're familiar with it's Mm -mm. like involuntary movements of your face and mouth that can become permanent oh wow i actually got that (laughs) i'm not proud of it but you know temporarily yeah i guess i still have some vibration of my tongue um but
0: and was that from a medication yeah you got that yeah. Is that medication no longer? It's off the
1: table. Yeah. As soon as they saw it, they took me off the medication. Cause, what, know, what
0: was the medication?
1: It was Haldol.
0: Okay. Yeah. Do they still prescribe that to people?
1: They do. Um, I think they do. Um, at least when I worked in, the, I actually worked back into the public mental health system after I got farther in my recovery. And um, some people did, you know, get Haldol but i think they're very careful to monitor. They have you do these certain things like stick out your tongue and close your eyes and they do these different weird tests <laughs> to try to get to see if you have it. But um yeah, so i did get that when i was in the state hospital. They put me on i was on 12 different medications.
0: That just i, I don't i don't get that. I don't get how isn't there a diminishing return on prescribing that many medications to somebody?
1: I At that time, I think it was just to maintain people. Um, it was a maintenance model. Now it's more the recovery model that people can get better, and less is more. Um, back then, I mean, that was 20 years ago. So it was like, you know, let's keep her alive, but let's not have her hurt anybody Or hurt herself
0: or feel anything
1: yeah exactly and I didn't feel anything
0: that's that's the other thing that that I think a lot of people that don't um, experience mental illness don't realize is there's so often with medication a sacrifice of quality of life uh, especially with the more toxic medications Mm -hmm. Um, and you can almost understand why somebody would 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 go off their meds because it's like yeah it's like they both have side effects. Your meds have side effects. You're not being on meds have side effects.
1: Definitely. And you're
0: always convinced whichever side effect you're dealing with, oh, that other side effect wasn't as bad. I want to go yeah. back. I want to go back to that. You
1: forget, you know, very easily what one was like or what the other is like. And with medication though, you can get it down to a tolerable amount. Right now, I don't have any side effects from my medication. I'm only on three, but. I mean I say only because it was 12 at one point um and then I I remember my mom having to dress me, having to help me brush my teeth, comb my hair because I was shaking so bad from the medication. I was doing the um Have you heard of the Thorazine shuffle before? I've heard of it, yeah. I was drooling, I was that wow. in the state facility. I was I was they kept everybody pretty uh
0: Now, when you're like that, are you aware that you're like that? Or are you so out of it you don't notice you're drooling or shuffling?
1: I knew that I couldn't move how I wanted to move. I remember when I was in the state hospital, some of the girls there wanted to beat me up. (laughs) I felt like I had to watch my back all the time. And I felt like I couldn't protect myself because my medication made me so... Um, slow and shaky. Um, And I moved in slow motion, I felt like.
0: Uh, What are the meds that you're on now?
1: What are they? Um, I'm on... um,
0: (laughs) I forget too sometimes when people ask me. I've been on so many different ones. Sometimes I'm like, oh... uh,
1: uh." Yeah, that's how I am right now. Yeah, that's okay. You know, but what I have to say about medications is that good to remember that they work differently for everybody and I know probably everybody with a mental illness has heard that from their doctors but it's true like I've been like not maybe this is like a co- a subconscious thing that I'm doing right now because I'm kind of hesitant to, to even mention what I'm on because I don't want someone to say, "Oh, oh okay. I want to try that." Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But I, I, thought I it seriously was... can't remember right now. Oh, but okay. I, <laughs> I'm just saying maybe there's a reason for that. Okay. But
0: then, then it's do, not, it's do you not understand important. what I'm saying? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, because I've
1: had a lot of um, people come to me, parents especially, mm. who want to know what I'm taking and. Cause they would hope that it would work for their loved one. And it so varies with biology and all that, yeah. that it's really hard to to know what's going to help. One person can help another and what combination to, mm-hmm. it's very tricky. I don't know. Oh, no, I don't no. want to be a psychiatrist. Cause yeah, it's pretty it's, tricky.
0: There's so much there. There's yeah. It's not like diagnosing a liver or a heart. It's the brain is so incredibly yeah. complicated. Um, oh, what are some seminal moments in your hospitalizations that kind of stick out or, um, things in your, you know, post 18 year?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the one that comes to my mind first is when I was restrained for the first time. Um,
0: was that in your first visit or how many, no, which visit was it?
1: I don't remember. It was in my, somewhere in my later twenties, um, I had found a piece of metal in the hospital and I had already had stitches on my arm from a prior cutting and that was why I was in the hospital and I took the piece of metal and I I gouged out those stitches and they restrained me and I felt like a beast I Why
0: did you want to take the stitches out?
1: Why? I I just really just wanted to cut myself again and oh. that was the easiest way. I see um and as soon as you know they I don't know I, I don't know um they saw that and they took me to the back room you know where um
0: could you understand why they were doing that in the moment though
1: yeah I was mad though because I wanted to do what I wanted to do it was like a kid you know I really regressed in those years Yeah, I I really did.
0: Yeah, because it strikes me as there. How could the adult in you not understand why they would need to do
1: that? I guess because there was no adult in me. I got sick at age seventeen. That's pretty young. Yeah. And you don't. I didn't really because how sick I was. I didn't really progress as a normal adult would or a normal. 20 year old would going to college, having, you know, learning from different things. I was in hospitals the whole time and it was just like, how could I progress? And my dear friends, including Janet, um, would always tell me, you know, I would, I would tell them that I felt like I was not as, I don't know, they had a life, you know, and and I missed that. And they said, well, you're getting life education, you're getting because they were going on and and some of our friends have families and and things like that and and I always wanted to get a degree that was always one of the big things and they're saying, you know, you're getting life education that's more than that's more valuable. Um I didn't get it then, but now that I've kind of come out of it and that I have come out of it, I I see it now. It's like a blur. It really is those 15 years um like a dream bad dream <laughs> but yeah
0: what do you feel like you've taken from it that you can sometimes go well i got i got that from
1: empathy that's the first thing that pops into my head and for yourself I've used and it, others yeah and i've used it to its full capacity now um that uh, well i'm just reaching out with it um i have a better understanding i think of the human condition um like you said one of those moments that you might that i remember pivotal moments not only just being restrained um there was a time where i totally i was in the room where they restrained people and i fell to the ground and i got into the fetal position and I started sucking the fingers that I used to suck when I was little. And I was watching myself do this because I had a lot of issues with dissociation. So I was watching myself on the ground like a little baby, just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And the staff was trying to get in there to get me, probably to help me. And every time I saw a shadow come over me, I would scream bloody murder. So they couldn't even approach me, and then one of the doctors crawled in, and it just—she <laughs> crawled in and she took me by the hand, and I let her. You know, that was the only person that I let near me was someone who was down at my level, at a kid's level. You know, I—I I don't know. I—it was like I, I had totally regressed, and that's how I feel about a lot of my years—is that not to that extreme. I mean, that was a one-night deal, um, but there was a lot of, you know, growth that didn't happen.
0: Thank you for sharing that. that, that that's, so, um, that's so heavy. Yeah. That's so heavy. I yeah. mean, and God bless that doctor for understanding what it was that you were going through.
1: Yeah, she kind of knew at that moment what her instinct was and followed it, and it was what I needed. Otherwise, I think they would have had to just come in and grab me, even though I wasn't harming anybody. I was, or myself. I was. I don't know how they would have, unless they just let me lay there. I don't know. It was a very hard time.
0: Can you give me any other seminal moments from or an arc of your being hospitalized, you know any type of progression that occurred
1: yeah um, well, or, tell or, you about or regression the time where things changed for me um it was the moment that changed my life for the better, and it was one of the darkest moments of my life as well I mean I'm sure. You've heard that from people. When they hit bottom, um, sometimes that's the the thing they needed. The biggest gift you can get. Yeah. And um, I I had cut myself the worst time ever in the dark um, with the utility knife razor. I don't know if I can be that graphic. but Yeah, you can. Um, and it was horrible. But I didn't see it until I got to the hospital because we just wrapped it up and I wouldn't look. And it didn't hurt or anything. And this
0: wasn't a suicide attempt. This was just a. This
1: was this.
0: That one um, right there. That mm -hmm. is incredibly. uh, uh, It was severe looking. Yeah,
1: it was very severe. Um, Fifty stitches, something like that. Um, Just to describe to the.
0: And 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 was it just a single pass? Yes. Just pushing down as hard as you can, and that was enough of a release to get what you would wanted in that Mm -hmm. moment. And that was did the site was the sight of the blood part of the release or just the feeling of the razor going
1: just the feeling of the razor and um just the release of of what it did like the blood i guess i didn't see the blood but maybe the feeling it's hard to know um but i remember just going in with all my might and it wasn't a suicide attempt obviously you know yeah. um
0: Did you damage the muscles?
1: That's the thing is that when I got into the ER, they kept having me do finger and hand tests, movement tests. And I did almost cut the muscle in my arm and lose the use of my left arm. Um, But I didn't. And for the first time, I was scared. And I had never been scared before about my cutting. Um, I never thought I could accidentally die from it. Um, but at that moment in the hospital, I said to my mom, please find me a place I can go to get help. And she, she did. Um, she found a hospital in Chicago that was one of a kind at its time. Um, that helps people who self injure and that's all they do. And I went there for a month.
0: And what was the name? Can you say um, the name of the safe place? Um, safe
1: alternatives. Mm hmm. And, uh, I went there for a month all by myself, <laughs> this little girl in a grown-up's body. But uh, I worked and worked and worked. We had, like, I don't know, eight hours of therapy a day. It was awesome. <laughs> it was. It was just everything you would want an experience to be that's therapeutic. And it had art therapy and role-playing and, you know, private sessions. And, but the thing was is when I went there, I was determined to stop. And that was 2001, and I haven't cut myself since. Wow! And I haven't engaged in my eating disorder. Wow! Yeah, it's that's amazing. My life.
0: So, and you, so you haven't had to be hospitalized since then.
1: I have, but not for those things. Okay, just,
0: um, just for meds stopping working, and you feeling like, or
1: or. Um, I wasn't sure at that point. I probably hadn't found the right meds yet for the depression and for um, the the other things that were going on with my head i kind of had a lot of double whammies going on um but that was the end of the cutting and that was the end of the eating disorder because i consider and still do that eating disorder is self-harm you know it's self-harm so when i went i pledged to myself that i would stop it all and i did
0: and what do you is are there things that you have to draw on to keep that from being an option, or was just the obsession to do that removed?
1: It's only felt like an option maybe a couple of times since. At first it was real tender, you know, like it was very easy to see falling back into and I knew I had to stay on top of things. But now, you know, however many years later, twelve, twelve years later, I don't think about it, um, hardly ever, maybe once in the last year or two that, hmm, maybe I should cut, you know, kind of fleeting thought, but other how many, than that. How many times
0: do you think you've, you've cut? Oh, um. Or how many scars do you think you have on your, on your body?
1: Ah. Uh, hard to say. At first they were very superficial so I wouldn't have the scars but I've probably cut over a hundred times but...
0: And was it always your arms? Would you cut on different parts of your body? I'd
1: cut on, you know, my legs sometimes or uh, my stomach I did um, but mostly on my arms.
0: Would there be a different feeling based on what part of your body you were cutting on? Or was it always just kind of the same feeling and didn't really matter where you were cutting?
1: Um... I don't think it mattered, because I didn't feel anything in the first place, you know. I didn't didn't feel anything. You wouldn't feel pain? No. Really? That's why it is as severe as it is, is because I didn't feel any pain.
0: Oh, my God. I had no idea. I thought the pain was the... No. ...like the rush.
1: It never hurt. Ever.
0: Oh, my God. I had no idea. People always
1: ask me, you know, how could you do that to yourself? Because It didn't hurt. I was so numb. Maybe that's how I did feel. you know. Maybe doing it brought feeling to me in the aftermath. Um,
0: it would hurt later then, and you would feel yeah, something? Yeah,
1: later when I would have stitches and stuff. It would soar. And,
0: so how long typically from the cut to you feeling a physical sensation would it be?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um,
0: Seconds, minutes, hours, days?
1: Probably minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And would that be would that p- pain have a pleasure component to it, or was it just pain?
1: It was a relief component, and then it was like all of a sudden my stomach, the bottom would drop out, and I'd be like, "What did I just do?" You know, and
0: which is like the back end of every addiction. Yeah,
1: exactly. Every addiction. That's why I totally can see the connection. And I was doing a training with a sheriff's department yesterday, and I train people on crisis intervention. And he's like, "Why did you choose cutting?" And I thought about it, and I I couldn't answer him. You know, I don't know if it was a choice. I said I felt yes. like it chose me.
0: I was just going to say the exact same <laughs> thing. I don't think people choose addictions. No,
1: that's what I was saying. But it made me think. You know, and I was like, "Hmm." I guess he couldn't understand because there's that social component that can be to how do you start drinking or how do you start doing drugs? How do you start cutting? You know, I don't know. I just did. You know, I really didn't have a good answer for that. Yeah, it's
0: like asking somebody, you know, what what made you want to start masturbating? Right. I, right. I don't remember. Exactly. It just was a feeling that needed taken care of. Yeah. And I had a thumb.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what oh uh, Janet had left a little a note that said déjà vu um
1: it's something I'm supposed to talk about Oh okay you want to talk about <laughs> she's that she's making me talk No I'm just kidding Um Yeah I mean but it's further along I don't know how much
0: We're we're good on time okay. Yeah
1: Um So what I wanted to say kind of like about after that Going to safe that hospital in Chicago and coming back home, I still had symptoms of paranoia and uh depression, definitely depression, and I was still going in and out of hospitals a lot, not as much and not for the same reason, but I was depressed, you know and um I think I got too kind of conditioned to go to the hospital. that was my way to retreat from the world. Instead of like not getting out of my bed, I would just go into the hospital and retreat totally from the world, because you're not really in the world when you're in the right. hospital. You're, everything's controlled. You that, know. That's
0: why I think it sounds so uh, alluring uh, sometimes, to, yeah. to me, is I, I fantasize sometimes about being checked into a hospital and just being able to completely collapse, to not have to go, "I, I, I can't even make toast." You right. know? Somebody would make toast for me.
1: Exactly, and everybody tells you what to do when, when to take your meds, and it's kind of like you sleep, eat, take meds, sleep, eat, take meds, and it's it's very—it's not complex.
0: (laughs) Can it be addicting in its in its lack of responsibility?
1: I think so. Maybe on a on a facade or on the outside, it might look like that. and it might have that component to it as well, but I think there's a need there that hasn't been met yet. And for some reason, I needed the hospital instead of finding out what I truly needed. And I, I did finally find find that out. You know, I, uh, um, one of the psychiatrists in one of the hospitals that I went to he came to me and he said, I would like to try this therapy with you. Um, are you willing to do that? And it's psychodynamic therapy, psychotherapy generally. And I said, yeah, you know, I'll do anything. And he started meeting with me three times a week. And then after he he moved, and so I, the lady who trained him became my psychotherapist. And that's what I needed. Um, that's the kind of therapy that worked for me. And it's because I didn't know anything about myself. I was the kind of person, whoever you wanted me to be, I would try to be. It's the perfectionism in me, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I, I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. And so, exploring with her, who I was, and then kind of liking that person a little bit, not hating her so much and then not hating her at all, and then actually moving to like and then love, I was able to implement all of those coping skills that people had taught me through the years of hospitalizations, you know, and uh, all the coping skills that I started wanting to implement them um, into my life and taking care of myself and getting myself better.
0: She must have been an amazing therapist to, to, to walk somebody through that, you know, to be that template for... A healthy relationship, which ultimately is what a good therapist does. Mm-hmm. the The relationship between the patient and the client is the thing, you know. That they're they're the training wheels, I guess. That that the the mm-hmm. client learns to begin to move on, um, but starting from such a deep dark place with you to a place where you love that person can you can you walk us through the 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 arc of that and any kind of seminal moments that you remember in in how you were changing and adapting and beginning to function
1: yeah um you know she met me i was in the hospital she came and saw me in the hospital um to meet me because i was very upset when my the first psychotherapist left And, um, I felt abandoned and that we were supposed to be in this together and I didn't really understand him leaving. Um, and so she came in and I was in a gown, I remember, and I was at some of my worst times of depression and she just sat there with me and that was kind of our first meeting is just sitting together and then, you know, talking our relationship deepened and deepened and deepened to where I felt safe enough to not be perfect with her. And I felt safe enough to yell at her, um, which I never, (laughs) I'm not much of a yeller, but you know, to actually be mad. Anger was not something that was in my family. Um, and so I didn't have, I didn't feel like anger was an okay emotion. And, you know, I, She actually helped me get angry for the first time. And after that, watch out, because you don't want to get in my path. You know, I was angry. I would tell off anybody who did me any kind of injustice. I would tell them off. And she walked that path with me. Um,
0: Janet's got got the European police coming in. (laughs) It's
1: okay. Um. (laughs) <laughs> Where was I? The police, the police. Um
0: so you you she helped you tap into this anger that you had been burying for 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 so long. Yeah. And um clearly it was very freeing for you to begin to realize that you could express that emotion and the world wouldn't abandon you.
1: Exactly. And things wouldn't fall apart. You know, um and then I was an okay. That was okay to do. Like I could even feel anger, um, and that was okay. Instead of taking it out, you know, on myself, um, when I I wasn't speaking about anger or letting that be a natural emotion, I was being angry. I was taking it out on my arms. I was, you know, vomiting up my food. I was not eating at all. I was angry. I just wouldn't let it myself admit that I was angry. Um, so she helped me through bad relationships, very unhealthy relationships. I sort of clung to the bad boy. (laughs) And, um, you know, I was definitely the classic enabler in my earlier relationships. And she helped me get the confidence enough to move out of my house, my parents' house. I lived there till I was 28 years old. Um, And she helped me get the confidence to apply for my first job, which was in my 30s, which was really hard to do. I was on social security disability for a long time. Um, And then I started working back in the field Um, the public mental health field where I received services from doing peer-to-peer type counseling. And um, that was a pivotal moment, definitely.
0: Describe what that pivotal moment felt like emotionally, intellectually.
1: Well, when I... I was actually asked to apply for the position and... I, I just, I couldn't believe that I was asked to do anything. You know, I had started some public speaking, training about recovery. I started learning more about recovery. But when I actually turned in that application and stuff, I was scared out of my mind. <laughs> but at the same time, there was this excitement that, wow, I was actually going to do something with my life. It was never an option before. It wasn't something I thought about or let myself think about that I could have a future Um,
0: Well, I would imagine that they, once you began to recover and progressed and began to express emotions in an adult way, and you had that template of that relationship with your therapist, so you could function in the real world as an adult, who is a better candidate for peer-to-peer than mm -hmm. you? It's like you have the greatest job resume in the world.
1: Yeah, and they're... They're recognizing that where I'm from um I don't I'm not I can't speak for every state what they're doing in every state but actually in Tucson they have a great program and I became certified as what's called a recovery support specialist and they're hiring people that have received services or are receiving services to help in a lot of different capacities of the job um i actually was an employment specialist of all people, a girl who had never had a job <laughs> but i was a i i was a an employment and a school like support person for people. I was a recovery support specialist where i I would use my life to help other people see the glimmers of recovery and that it's possible and I would share my life with them, you know um and i also worked for um a place that oversaw the frontline workers so actually i was you know in the a more administrative type position and i was on their board of directors um People saw the value in my recovery, and they even saw it before I really saw it. They helped me see it.
0: Most people do see it before <laughs> yeah. before we see it. We're usually the last ones to see the good in ourselves or the, the, the silver lining to, to what we've been through.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I started getting a lot of attention in a good way for... This time, you know, instead of for cuts on my arms, I was getting attention for what I knew and what I had to offer other people, which was hope um, that from being said to be being institutionalized, that's what I heard overheard two nurses saying about me once, to being someone who's sought after in the community to help other people was just such a contrast for me.
0: How, how did that make you feel about the universe or your place in the universe or, or the meaning of your life? Or it did felt it,
1: like did... there was a reason for all this to happen. Um, I'm a person who tries to see the good in everything. And all that I went through, um, Janet, her note is about... Um, it says deja vu, by the way. Um, and I was diagnosed in my later, in my earlier 30s with a seizure disorder. And the symptom was that I got deja vu all the time. And they kept putting me in the psychiatric unit because I would tell them this feels like it's already happened before. And I would get it 24 7 deja vu. And I'm not explaining it very well, but. Anyway, they would put me in the psychiatric hospital, but it turned out to be a seizure disorder, temporal lobe epilepsy and that is one of the um symptoms of that. And symptoms of t- um déjà vu is a symptom of temporal lobe epilepsy. It I can said. be. And you know, with all that I'd already been through, all the state the state hospital, all the hospitalizations, here I have a medical thing Another thing to add to my what I felt like this plate that's stacked to the ceiling. Um, another thing to add, and I was almost I was exhausted at that point, but I fought through it. You know, I, I'm I guess I just have it in me to fight through things. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, do you feel like we've we've touched on uh, the big all the kind of the big seminal moments?
1: Um I think there's one more that I'd like to sure. kind of include is I was still having my depression um in these last few years um recurrent depression and I found out that And was
0: this unipolar depression or bipolar depression
1: Unipolar Okay and I was I started hooking it to you know it was happening monthly Um, happens to a woman every month sort of thing. And I told the doctors that, and they finally, I found a gynecologist who believed me. And it happens to be true. Um, And my depression was, um, a lot of my depression was caused by my hormones. And I ended up having a total hysterectomy. And I haven't been depressed since. Really? Yes. Um, That was about a year ago. I wonder how much of my life I wouldn't have been depressed but and I'm not saying go out and get a hysterectomy by all means please Um, but what I'm saying is for me I think that you should be treated as a whole human being and whatever is causing something in your head could be in your body and everything's connected and you know I guess that's just what I want to add in the end is that I found out that there was another component to everything, and it it was so complex, and that's why it took so long I think um,
0: that, that is the thing about mental illness is it's you can't isolate any one thing, everything overlaps, everything is tangled in with something else, yeah and, uh, and a lot of it uh, begins with events maybe that happen, environmental stuff that you need talk therapy to talk about, and then maybe there's a biological component, and then maybe there's diet or exercise. or
1: And the biology could get turned on by an event. You know, like um, for my dad, he had a breakdown. Um, his first psychotic break was because of something that had happened. It kind of switched that biological component that he had had. And um, that's why it's so complex. And that's why I don't give advice over the, over the airwaves <laughs> yeah. about any of this, um, as to what to try, what not to try. All I can do is say what worked for me.
0: Well, Christina, thank you so much for, for sharing, um, all of that stuff with us, man. the that's some of that stuff is so, so deep and, and heavy the the fact that you've come out the other side of that um, that must feel great having meaning now assigned to everything you've been through instead of just torture for the sake of torture
1: yeah it really does I mean I'm here on your podcast <laughs> <laughs> things are happening for me now uh, I'm um, going back to school which I've wanted to do for since I left school after those three months going back to the university I'm doing things with my life. I've been on TV, I've been in the paper about my advocacy work and it feels really good to me that I can change I can change change the world in a way, um even in a small way. Um I do a lot of talks um where I'm speaking to audiences of maybe maybe 10 people or maybe 500 people. And I'll have people come back and tell me, you know, something you said changed my life forever. And that is makes it all worth it. You know, one thing, this uh, happened to me the other day. A woman came up to me. She had seen me speak in 2005 and said, you know, I haven't cut in a year. And I it's because of you and I was like what Mm -hmm. you know uh, it just blows me away I mean I don't think it's all because of me but something I said made sense to her so
0: yeah sometimes we can be that spark that somebody then believes that that they are worth working on also Mm -hmm. and And uh, I was just gonna say and they you know they want to give us all the credit and and it's 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 not they're the ones that that went ahead and did the work
1: Right, and I think that's why this podcast, I have to say, is so awesome because you're having people with an array of experiences come on and say what worked for them, what didn't work for them, how their life was, how it is now, and it gives people hope. you got to hold the hope for people sometimes.
0: And, and the bottom line, I think, too, is it's ultimately endlessly interesting because it's so complex. Yeah. You know, I learn stuff. From every single person that i that I interview there 's something that i 'm like oh i I had no idea you know, i 'd talk to you know you 're probably the twentieth guest that i 'd had that i 'd talked about cutting, mm. but there 's parts of it from your story that i that opened my eyes to a, a different part of it that i 'd never had any idea because I guess everybody's personal experience with it is is a little bit different, or they express it a little bit differently. Either way, but um, if we weren't talking about it, we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to assign this to get this beautiful silver lining to it, yeah. which is um, ultimately it's really nice to know that the universe isn't just taking a big loose dump on us.
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah, and um, I mean, and it's it's also combating the stigma, which is huge. But it's getting smaller, I feel. It is. It is. In fact, that we can talk about this right now. We're, we're complete strangers, yeah. but we're not anymore because we can share, you know, what we've been through.
0: Yeah. Well, Christina, thank you so much. Is there a website or something where people can contact you if they, if they want to know more about you or get you to speak or anything?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, it's not up yet, but it will be up and coming very soon. Okay. Um com or I do have a blog called EmpoweringJourney.wordpress.com.
0: Okay. Well, uh, Christina, and uh, I I just want to thank you so much, and and thank Janet for uh, for arranging for for us to get together and uh, and talk about all this stuff.
1: Definitely. Thank Thank you. you so much.
0: Truly, one of the most inspiring uh, stories I've I've heard um, in ten years of recovery and uh, the two and a half years of doing this this podcast. Many thanks to uh, to Christina. Um, before we take it out with uh, some emails and a survey or two. Um, want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast you can support it financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and making a one-time paypal donation or god bless those of you that are monthly donors Um, you can sign up to be a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month set it up and you don't have to do anything unless you want to cancel or your credit card expires and um it's uh it's kind of the financial um Foundation that I'm able to keep this podcast running on, um, but I could definitely use some some more support. Um, I would love to get to the point where I can support myself um, doing this podcast. I don't know if it's a dream or a pipe dream, but um, um, would love to would love to uh, be able to to do that someday. All right, enough of my begging. Uh, oh, you can also support us financially by um, using our Amazon search portal. It's on the homepage, right hand side, about halfway down. And uh, you can support us non-financially by going to uh, iTunes and giving us a good rating uh, or by just spreading word about the podcast through social media. Um, yeah, let's get into it. Mostly emails today. I think we really only have um, one or two surveys. Uh, the first one I have is from a listener who calls uh, herself Allie. And she writes, "Uh, I've been in a living relationship with my beautiful boyfriend for six months now. I love him very dearly and feel lucky almost every day. And he loves me in return. Almost every day. On some other days, his significant general anxiety disorder throws up in my face. I find it hard to let myself be honest to myself in thinking that when he's unwell, the relationship is incredibly fucking difficult. I assume it's all worth it because he is a wonderful, wonderful person, funny, smart, caring, and unconditionally supportive. I would also like to think that I could f- reciprocate that unconditional support, but some nights I'll get home from work, uh, uh, from working with depressed, anxious people, see his face pale and filled with dread, hear him breathing sporadically while clutching his chest, and honestly, I either fantasize about being anywhere but there or pushing him off the fucking balcony. I understand he can't help it. I really do. And I understand that how. I feel about his illness means nothing compared to how awful he must be feeling inside his brain. I understand that I will now not be able to fix him, and I understand that his disorder is something he may have to manage for the rest of his life, but on nights like tonight when I can't get a response from him, he doesn't talk about what he's going through because he physically can't, and he'll likely sleep on the couch because being close to me at all will spin him out, I just want to feel entitled to be angry and disappointed and hurt that i can't be enough for him to feel okay so that's a mini thesis on my feelings writing them writing them to you is enough for me to feel okay again and thank you for sharing that ally i imagine there are a lot of people that really relate to that and it's one of the reasons why i wanted to read that um and I know a lot of you want to hear my wife be interviewed on the podcast and you've asked me that. Um, she, she is an extremely private person and um, she is not interested in doing that. I've asked her, um, even though I knew she was going to say no. But um, if you live in the Los Angeles area and you are the loved one of somebody who um, has had a difficult time. Uh, or has a difficult time with mental illness, uh, please email me and we can talk about maybe recording something. Um, the web, the uh, email address is mentalpod at gmail.com. Um, and the other shout out I want to give too is to parents of kids that have mental illness. I know a lot of times we, I wouldn't say shit on parents, but you know we make that link between childhood trauma and neglect, needs not, not being met, and mental illness and while that is the case there are also parents out there that are awesome and loving and they just have a kid that was born with something that is f- a, a fucking nightmare to 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 deal with and you don't get um the compassion that you deserve and in fact you get probably the opposite because people leap to judgments and think oh you must be the reason why this kid is acting up and um Etc., etc. So I just want to send a, a hug to those of you because I've gotten some emails from from those of you and read some of them on this show, and I can't imagine how difficult and draining and emotionally alone you must feel. Um, so, sending you some love. This is from a very rarely taken survey called the Young Male Abused by Older Female survey. That's got a catchy name, though, doesn't it? Doesn't it just sound like fun? Uh, This was filled out by a guy um, who uh, calls himself uh, Rainbow Dash, Um, although he used to be male. He is uh, transgendered male to female now and uh, straight, um, uh, 30 to 39, and writes, um, let's see, at age 16, Um, my mother died all of a sudden. With my father mostly gone, I began spending more time at one of my friend's houses where I began a friendship with his mother. At the time, she was 43 years old and our friendship was strictly platonic. She was kind of a mother to a whole group of friends, but about a year after my mother died, she started taking more interest in me. In the beginning, it was small stuff such as taking me to lunch or buying small purchases like clothing, but as time passed, the purchases became more expensive and she began to take me on trips with her. Our relationship during this time became more physical as well. We started off with innocent massages, back rubs, and it would progressively move to genital rubbing and eventually to sexual intercourse. Um, If something happened, did you ever tell anyone? Years later, I would tell my therapist about this, but it is still something that I am ashamed of. Um, what feelings come up when you remember this? Uh, shame, regret, sadness. Do you feel any damage was done? Damage was done. I will leave it at that. Um, send in a big hug. Big hug to you, uh, Rainbow Dash. Um, I, uh... It sounds like you've you've been able to put the... Take the blame off of yourself. Um, and I hope you can get to the point where you can take the shame off of yourself because, um... You were groomed. You were absolutely groomed. This is from a listener who wants to be called uh, Chickenopolis, George Chickenopolis, um, and we had uh, he and I had emailed a, a couple of times before. I got one of the you know one of my favorite emails in the world, which is um, uh, I'm, I've started therapy. Uh, from listening to your podcast and you're urging people to go to support groups and therapy. Um, I'm now in therapy. And so sometimes I'll I'll email, give me an update. I'd love to hear how it's going. And so he gave me an update and um, and then this third email and he wrote, uh, hey, Paul, so I responded to your invita- invitation to update you with therapy breakthroughs, et cetera, uh, by saying, oh, nothing major really. It's just been really positive in general. And then I think... Um, Probably the next session after that I finally came out with the fact that I had realized a few years ago that within me there is some degree of wanting to be and or dress like a woman. Uh, I'm not a woman currently. We've talked about it for a couple of weeks in a row and while I've gotten a little more clarity around this, it's still super confusing. Also, sometimes exciting and frequently terrifying. But I keep going back to the point you are constantly making, that there are shades of gray for everything, and we don't need to try and fit ourselves into binary extremes. So I'm just trying to let it swirl around in my head and not rush it too much or worry about what it's going to turn into. And then the episode from last week. I saw the episode name in iTunes and just had to laugh. Good timing all around. This is still so new and confusing for me. I'm not even sure what I got out of the episode, but it was definitely relevant to what's been going in my head, and very appreciated. Thank you for uh, for sharing that, George Chicanopoulos. and uh, the episode he's referring to is with uh, Pigeon, who is a, um, a transgendered uh, listener that that we recorded, and uh, this. And I also got an, uh, an email from a listener. Um, who told me that uh about her sister um who is a trans woman uh was born male and is now uh female and i said could you think she would be interested in writing something um that i could either read on the podcast or um post on the website and so um she sent me this and um her name is Alicia uh Dear Paul, on episode 134 of Mental Illness Happy Hour, you you introduced the listeners to the trans community by interviewing a guest who identified himself as gender fluid slash gender queer. Um, Thank you. Uh, There was an important aspect, however, that was left out of the podcast, that of physical changes for transsexuals, which require far more commitment, have have far higher stakes, and require more sacrifices than living a gender fluid lifestyle. I am a male to female transsexual in my mid-30s and have lived as a post-op trans woman, meaning I underwent sex reassignment surgery, for the majority of my adult life in both liberal and conservative areas of the United States. I went through my transition as soon and as fast as I could because for me there were only two options available, change my body or kill myself. Suicide would have been the far easier and cheaper option. But I didn't take such a cowardly cop out and opted to become a transsexual instead. But what does transsexual mean? By my and many others' opinions, a person's status of transsexual means that they have an identity in their minds different than that of the body in which they were born and have made physical changes to their bodies to attain congruence between their mental and physical identities. Trans men, born as women, may have their chests reconstructed, undergo surgical alteration of genitals, uh, and sex, uh, reassignment surgery, and or take injections of testosterone. Trans women, born as men, may undergo hormone replacement therapy with estrogen, have their faces poked thousands of times with electrified needles during electrolysis to remove facial hair, surgically alter face, face characteristics in, more ways, in, ways, in ways more invasive than typical plastic surgery, breast augmentation surgery, and or sex reassignment surgery. The outcomes of these procedures vary and lead to various challenges and problems. There are financial problems because medical interventions cost tens of thousands of dollars. Some transsexuals have more money to pay for medical procedures, and a fortunate few even work for companies progressive enough to force their medical insurance providers to fund their employees' transitions. Medical insurance generally does not cover transitions. Um, Social and professional success as a woman depends on an excellent presentation in the transformed gender, and medical intervention is crucial for this, but money often gets in the way. There are legal fights to have sex and gender changed on important legal documents getting the appropriate legal identity is, a, is crucial to gain legal protection of one's identity and not be forced to live as the wrong sex with regards to public restroom usage, professional dress codes, marriage licenses, and so on. There are professional difficulties because some organizations do not want their workforce tarnished by gender-variant individuals, and such organizations can use overt and subtle methods to either accept or reject transsexuals from their workforce leaving transsexuals with restricted work options. Finally, there are social and personal problems. For married transsexuals, transition often means immediate divorce. Immediate and extended families may or may not accept or respect them. And transsexuals often have to accept the fact that they reach a limit to modifications for their body and therefore hit a wall in their acceptance as man for trans men or woman for trans women. Can transsexuals live in a state of gender fluidity? Yes. Some embrace an androgynous and fluid lifestyle out of choice because they pass perfectly as their desired sex. Some are forced to accept a gender fluid lifestyle because they cannot pass effectively as their transformed sex. As a member of the transsexual community, I wanted to bring physical action back into the dialogue and highlight the sacrifices that transsexuals must make in order to live a life of psychological peace. Or as close as they can get to it. Thanks for reading this and thanks for doing the podcast. If you have any questions, let me know. Um, and if you guys have any questions, I'd be happy to f- forward them to uh, Alicia. And I got to say, I love that we are getting the dialogue um, on this podcast going about this because uh, I got to say, I walked into this podcast not even knowing that the term she was offensive. And, um, I feel like one of the things that I'm really proud—if this—if this podcast does accomplish anything—it's that we give voice to people who are misunderstood or, or underrepresented, and um, just makes me feel good when when you guys jump in and open up and let us know who you are and what you're what you're struggling with. Um, I want to read an email from a listener. Who um, calls herself Andrea? And I had read one of her surveys a few episodes back, and um, she had done some stuff, some sexual stuff as a as a kid that um, filled her with a lot of shame. She hadn't hurt anybody, um, but she had a lot of shame about it. And um, and apparently, I'd said something, you know, on the podcast that you was know, telling her to forgive herself and it wasn't a big deal, et cetera, et cetera, and. So we exchanged a couple of emails, and I just thought the most recent one that she had sent me um, was something that that I wanted to read, and so I'm going to read it. She writes, um, I, I didn't grow up in an environment where feelings were ever shared. Rare communications consisted solely of people yelling at each other. So I kind of cling to opportunities to hear and share embarrassing, icky feelings whenever possible. Filling in all the surveys was hugely cathartic. By just getting it out and looking at those feelings on the screen, I could feel an iron fist in my chest unclenching. I was heading down the porn route again last night, but I decided to fill out a few surveys first. That's why I was dwelling on all the sexual stuff, I think. I remember a while back on the podcast hearing you talk about not being present and uh, breaking up with girlfriends as soon as you knew they were into you. I had to pause pick my jaw up from the floor, and sit quietly for a long time. The truth of what you'd said and how perfectly I identified with it hit me like a freight train. Um, I have an extremely limited sexual experience, but the instant I felt my partner might be interested in me for more than my body, as soon as I felt like he loved me, it was like a light went off in my head. I objectify women, and I objectify myself, and in all of my fantasies, I am something men like to put their dick in and nothing more. Often now, I avoid equal sexual contact altogether. I'd much rather get him to finish quickly and personally stay out of it, claiming to not want any, not want any reciprocation and blaming my depression medicine as a libido killer, which it is, but obviously I'm still watching porn that gives me a quick orgasm and makes me feel terrible. I know fantasizing is a compulsion or even addiction that is really setting back my recovery from depression. I'd love to hear you talk more about it on the podcast. A few allusions have been made by some guests, but I don't remember any who really struggled long term. I'm a total fantasist. I like how you describe it as a drug. I've been on fantasy since I can remember, and when coupled with the perfectionism, Of depression, it's an immobilizing cocktail. I can't even enjoy music anymore. I've ruined all my favorite bands by dreaming up some story in which I play an integral part in them. I cringe with embarrassment when I think about how detailed and pathetic my fantasy life is. I was going to go into some detail, but I won't. Suffice it to say, I know what you mean, and I'm desperate to get out of my head in the bedroom and outside of it. God, it was just sexual fantasies. If it was just sexual fantasies I struggled with, I think I'd be okay. As it is, I'm just going to go back to disappearing into The Sims for 12 hours. With me, it's fantasy or oblivion. Oh, Christ, is there a 12-step program for escaping reality? Um my first doctor was unsympathetic to say the least i went to him maybe three different times in two years and he would prescribe a different pill for my quote, mood swings each time when i was trying to explain through tears that i cry every day and want to die all of this some four years after i first took an overdose at fifteen but i went to a new doctor who listened Um, actually read every time I'd gone to the doctor to ask for help. I had this embarrassing habit of crying and forgetting things and feeling fucking stupid. So I wrote down everything I wanted to tell her about how depressed I felt and how regularly, etc. So I was careful to not under or overstate anything. And as predicted, as soon as I sat in her office, I lost the ability to talk. So I showed her my scribbled notes and she gave me uh, meds. And now I don't want to kill myself all the time. Through opening up, Uh, I've made a a friend, my first new friend in four years, who is a customer in the coffee shop I work at, a domestic violence survivor and anxiety mentor. We talk about porn and meds and our crushing insecurities. It's amazing I made it here. I'm 22 and I managed to move out, escape my cruel, draining mother and soul-crushing childhood home, and support myself. I wouldn't have considered that an achievement before I found your podcast. It's brought me and my partner closer together. I started to share my favorite episodes with him, and we've never been closer. In the, never been closer in the four years we've been together as we are today. We pause interviews sometimes and talk about memories and feelings. It's brought up in us. Uh, he started to share with me parts of his idyllic childhood that were maybe less than idyllic. So I don't feel like the quote fucked up one so much. Yay! And I am certain one day I will play him you reading my survey. And we'll laugh about how worried I was. Thank you so much for that, Andrea. Um, right now, I'm feeling a pang of anxiety because um, I feel like I'm stroking myself too much with the things I'm reading today because I think that's the second one that complimented the podcast. And, um, and I'm going to go out on a happy moment that involves the podcast. But um, I have the feeling it's probably just my low self-esteem. That voice that was planted in my head as a kid that, is telling me that if people say nice things about me, it's, um, and I don't hide it that I'm being a pompous ass. Um, this is from the Happy Moments survey filled out by uh, Crystal, and she writes It was this past summer and I was driving. I don't have air conditioning in my car, so my windows were wide open with the breeze in my car. Uh, It causes me to turn the radio really loud. So I'm driving around my somewhat conservative city listening to the podcast. I stop at a light and I'm in my own little world, unaware of my surroundings, when Paul decides to say cock, rape, sex, and probably blowjob all in a red lights moment. I became very aware that my windows are open and I'm at a light. I look to my right and a woman in her minivan is staring at me utterly disgusted. The only thing I could think to say was the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast. It's awesome. Go listen to it. And I drove off laughing wondering what was going through her head. Oh, that made me laugh when I read that. Made me feel good too. Um, thank you guys for helping me uh, do this show. Let me get to know you filling out the surveys, being my guests and um, and reminding me that I'm not alone because I need, I need to be reminded of that every day, every fucking day. Because you know what happens if I don't? I punch guys in the in the face, whether they're on my team or not. And that's no way to live. So if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, I, I, I hope you know that uh, that there is hope. You just got to get out of your comfort zone and ask for help because uh, mental illness and addiction and all of this stuff, uh, other stuff, it's it's bigger. It's bigger than than, uh, than what we can handle on our own. Um, and we need somebody to talk to. At least I do. That's why I started it. You're not alone. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is
1: bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know weird beautifully fucked up in some weird ways. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.